0: Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Talk 11. In this talk, Bruce Ullman tells us about shortcuts around the world. The building of the Suez and Panama canals. Part A. We need to remember that before industrial revolution, large cell colonisation and um, world trade was much much smaller, populations were smaller, there wasn't an awful lot of industry, most trade was local, what international trade there was was high value, low volume, so there was no real economic reason to build a canal anywhere in terms of shipping to try and make it shorter. No economic reason, but then the pharaohs didn't need economic reasons to build uh, the pyramids, and they didn't need an economic reason to build a canal between Suez and the Red Sea, which they did do 4,000 years ago. So we mustn't think that these things are new. The first ones actually went across to the Nile from the Red Sea, but latterly Darius built one that went, follows largely the current route. That shows you sort of where the trade routes generally were. But when Darius built his canal, he left a whole line of granite stelae along it to tell everybody that he'd built it, but it also told people in the future that, that there had been one. So we know there actually was a canal. And it was largely used. It wasn't for trade particularly. It was mainly used for transporting military purposes and monumental stone. So you know, when you want to build a... You need to excavate stone from somewhere you can then carry it on your canal. Herodotus tells us that uh, it was big enough for two triremes to pass um, with their oars out. So it must be pretty big, yes. So that's what he says. And it took four days to get from one end to the other. I don't know if they had to stop a lot on the route. The (laughs) biggest problems they had was that they didn't really have the mechanical means to keep the canals going, so they used to keep um, silting up, and they'd silt up, and then they'd dig them out again. And this happened oh, quite a few times. We know that Ptolemy second, and Trajan, the uh, Roman Emperor, had that done. And it was also still happening in the time of the Islamic takeover of Egypt because they used the canals for transporting grain down to Saudi Arabia and pilgrims up to the Holy Land. Anyway, after all this, it, uh, it, it, it seemed to um, silt up and be not used a great deal. The next we hear about possibilities of the canal through Sillis was when the Venetians, having lost a lot of their trade, which used to be on the overland, the, they were the centre of the overland trade, Once the trade around around Cape Horn was established and considered to be safer because they didn't get pirates and they didn't get locals attacking the the land route, they lost a lot of their trade and they thought, well, let's build a canal through Suez. And they actually put a proposal to the Council of Ten, but it was deemed to be too expensive, so they stopped that. Napoleon, when he went to Egypt and uh, conquered Egypt for a little while, he saw these uh, stelae and the remains of the canal from Darius and said, what a good idea. I can get at those British. We'll take their trade away if we can build another canal. So he got his engineers to survey the route of uh, the possibility of uh, rebuilding it. Luckily for us, they made a mistake. And they thought that the Red Sea was 10 meters higher than the Mediterranean. And that was, would have made it impractical to build. So. He gave up the idea, and of course he didn't stay there that long, so he didn't have time to build one. But then, I, I, I can't call him the hero. central character with the Suez Canal, and to the Panama Canal, arrived in Egypt in 1831. And this is Ferdinand de Lissette. Excuse my pronunciation, I really don't... not very good at French. Um, and he was the appointed vice consul in Alexandria. While he was in quarantine, I don't know whether this was normal or whether there was an outbreak of disease on his ship, but he was in quarantine for a couple of months or so, and he read a lot of books. And one of the books he read was was the report from the French engineer who had looked at building the canal under Napoleon. And he got really interested in this. In fact, he got obsessed by the idea, and he he decided this was his sort of thing, his role, his aim in life to get this canal built. So he, he, he, he approached the voice viceroy, the Egyptian viceroy, remembering, as we heard last time, so there is a little bit of a link from, with the last talk, that Egypt was part of the Ottoman Empire at the time, but it had an awful lot of independence. So he approached the viceroy of Egypt, who was uh, Muhammad Ali, and, but he, he really just wasn't interested. He was told by Istanbul that the British didn't want a canal built so um, he wasn't interested in helping. However, he made great friends with Ali's son, Saeed Pasha. Now, Saeed was a little bit overweight, should we say, and his father had him on a diet, but he could pop round to Ferdinand's house and get fed. Apparently, the only place he could get a decent bowl of spaghetti. I didn't know the Egyptians ate spaghetti, but apparently that, was, that is what we are told. So he made friends with him, but he wasn't allowed to build his canal. And he went off, he was a diplomat, he went off, he had various uh, diplomatic postings over the time. And it wasn't till 1854, when Muhammad Ali died, Said took over as viceroy. So, Lesaps hot-foots it down to, to Egypt, chats with him, and comes to an agreement to build a canal. Not quite as easy as that, of course. It's interesting, just when I, went, when I sort of got this topic, I went to the library, looked up cana- um, building the Suez Canal, and there was no book, nothing, no books at all in the library on but building the Suez Canal. You go onto Amazon, dare I work, use that word, I uh, went to Amazon, and this is about the only book there, two books there, both by the same author, and I suspect they one was just a, a rewrite of the other. Nine-tenths of this book tells you about all the political machinations of how to build the canal, and also all the things we know about afterwards, six days war, Sillies, 56 Sillies, and such. Right. But it, it, you get to the bit where he can, he's allowed to build the canal, and the next page is built and they're opening it. So there's really very little involved in, opening this, in building this canal, you'd think. If you go onto the internet, there's a lot more. It depends on which stories you read, because some of them were were either written or closely involved to Sap's son and grandson. Uh, So you get a slightly different story from as you read (coughs) the the accounts written by the Egyptians. But there we are. In the meantime, between Ferdinand making friends with Ali and him becoming the Viceroy, there had been a number of people who had done further surveys of the route and shown that actually it, it was level. There was no significant difference between the Red Sea and Mediterranean. So it was a practical thing. The British, as I said, didn't want a canal. They'd rather have a railway, and they were worried what would happen to their trade. But the opposition was weakening. Um, the P&O and the East India Company both were in favor, and the problems they had reinforcing India during the, the, the mutiny, the time it took to go around the, the horn rather than being able to use a canal, um, did start to make people sit up and think maybe a canal wasn't such a bad idea. And they had a lucky break in 1858, so this is two years after Syed came to, to power, if that's the right word. The government of Lord Palmerston fell, and also the Stratford Canning, Lord Stratford Canning, who was the ambassador in Istanbul, he retired so the major the major opposition to the canal was gone in Istanbul so they got permission to start building Suez Canal Company had a license for 99 years to build and operate the canal it was half owned by the French the İd- Lesaps didn't want it to be seen to be a purely French thing the Egyptians had a quarter and um, Said took of the the, the shares, and the rest was to go to uh, other foreign investors. Unfortunately, the British opposition, Russian opposition, and various other um, opposition countries meant that nobody took up, or very few people took up those shares. And this is, you then get a little bit of what's going to happen in the future. Um, The SAPs made an announcement that um, Said was going to buy the remaining shares. He hadn't asked him, he just said he was going to do it. And then poor old side, not to lose face, he really had to buy them. So he bought them. So he ended up with 44% of the shares of the company. But he had to borrow the money. The banks were quite happy to lend him money. They weren't prepared to organise shares and buying shares, but you know, providing the interest rate was high enough, they were quite happy to um, lend the money. So they did. Construction started in 1859 and the route we know, yeah. straight up and down, through the Great bitter Lakes and such. like. Okay, so they started building, but three years after, rather more than three years, they'd spent nearly all their money, and they hadn't actually started building the main canal at all. They'd built a little fresh water canal. Remember, this is all through the desert, they needed the fresh water, so they needed the fresh water. So this little canal gave them route for supplies, water, and materials, building materials, but he hadn't actually started building the main canal. And this is fairly typical of him, he would talk up his, uh, he'd announced he'd got this canal built and he'd talk everything up in the hope that the share price would go up and he'd be able to get more, it'd be easier to get more capital. And he went through all sorts of um, processes to build, get capital for the canal. He had a, a, a share lottery so if you bought shares, you'd go into the lottery, you'd get your dividend greater if you were lucky to um, get the, the right shares came out. So he, he went through all sorts of th- these. These all had to be approved by the French government, but uh, they were. He had friends in high places. Anyway, so that's the sort of thing he used to do. Then Said died, and the next viceroy wasn't so keen, and... The other thing was that the agreement to build had said that the Egyptians would provide the labor. Well, they did what they always did. They'd been doing since the pyramids. They used the corvée, they used forced labor. But this was 19th century, and um, slavery wasn't really looked upon very well. And the British used this as a good excuse to speak to the Turks, and the Turks said, no, stop. Um, so the construction was stopped um, at this point. I mean, we were having, a in the middle of a war in, in America, Civil War was on, um, where they were trying to stop slavery. Well, that was one of the reasons that uh, came out of it, yeah, trying to stop slavery. And just slavery was just one of those things that, that you know, was was not popular, shall we say, amongst most countries. It, uh, so, but then, if you know the right people, and um, the, the Saps was... Um, Prince, uh, Prince, Empress Eugenie's um, cousin, so he spoke to her, and she spoke to Napoleon III, and he used his diplomatic efforts, and they came to an agreement that they'd stop using the corvee, but they would be allowed to continue building, so they did. But that didn't mean they had to spend a lot more money on on machinery. They were already, already using some machinery, but a lot more. So they bought these rather nice dredges, which dumped the spoil on the side of the canal, where it's set nice and hard, which was good, Protected the canal. And it was finished in three years. So get, get, get the right equipment in, and it works. So we have to remember that uh, Dudley Saps, he wasn't an engineer. He got no engineering training, but he was a, a fixer, whether you like that or not. He was a fixer. And his achievement was actually sort of pushing it through, getting it done. So the canal opened 17th of November, 1869, so 10 years. The opening was performed by Ishmael Pasha and the Empress Eugenie. It was one of the most grandiose events of the century. There was an extravaganza, it began with fireworks, and a ball for 6,000 people. Invitees included the Sultan of Turkey, the Austro-Hungarian Emperor, Crown Prince of Prussia, Crown Prince of the Netherlands, and Queen Victoria, although invited, she was still in mourning a few years after Albert had died, she sent the Prince of Wales. They, they built luxurious apartments, temporary structures, they even built a replica of Eugenie's apartments in the tuileries for her to stay in while, they were, while she was there. Of course, the, we, we've all heard of the uh, Cairo Opera House and how there um, is Egyptian-based. Aida was supposed to perform. He was a bit late delivering it, so they had to make do with Rigoletto, uh, which, as far as I know, has no uh, Egyptian connections. Anyway, the, the high point of this opening was going to be the first transit of the canal, first official transit of the canal, and the, the honour of this was accorded to Eugénie in the French yacht legal if that's how you pronounce it but the night before the uh, transit was supposed to happen captain george nair navigated hms newport through the massive waiting ships it was in the dark with no lights and when dawn broke there she was sitting at the head of the queue (laughs) of course the french were horrified (laughs) the royal navy at the front but there's nothing they could do about it so off they went this is he. They don't, there actually aren't any pictures of, of H.O.'s uh, newport, but that's a boat that looks a bit like it. Nair's received an official reprimand from the Admiralty and an unofficial vote of thanks. After the opening of the canal, the uh, canal company was actually in some quite a lot of financial difficulty. You have to remember, we're talking about a time when the vast majority of trading ships were still sailing ships and they can't go through the canal. Uh, and actually, the British lost out on this because having the largest fleet, they got the largest fleet of sailing ships. The more modern fleets that other people were, were building and, uh, to, to, to try and compete a bit um, were steamships. So it was actually those fleets that um, dominated the trade through the canal. But of course, the Saps couldn't cope with this, not getting the amount of money he thought he was going to get the canal so he decided he'd fiddle the the method of charging this caused a bit of a rumpus and uh, there was an International Commission of Constantinople and they agreed that the charging process which is actually still in use today then in 1875 Ishmael Pasha was due to repay all these loans he'd taken out to uh, buy the shares and such like. and it was at that point that Disraeli uh, stepped, stepped in and, and bought the shares from him over one weekend without consulting anybody. A bit of a you know. The Parliament wasn't terribly happy not being consulted, but at the end of the day, as we all know, it was a, a good thing and everybody was happy, except the French, of course, you know. even though they still had the majority of shares. Then, as again we heard last time, uh, in 1882, uh, there was some local nationalist unrest which uh, gave the British the opportunity and the excuse to go in and take over Egypt even though it was still nominally Ottoman. Uh, we, we took it over and the... Uh, oh, I thought that was me. And the, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Convention of uh, Constantinople in 1888 declared the canal to be a neutral zone for anybody to use, and the British were... Guarant- were it was under the protection of the British um, guaranteeing passage to everybody in peace and war. Well, you know how much we uh, we uh, we stood by that during the World Wars. There you are. The original cost estimate was 200 million francs, and it cost more than double that to actually build. Uh, although the amount of earth moved was actually bang on target. And I guess that's something you ought to be able to estimate fairly well. Originally, there was supposed to be 15% of revenues go to the Egyptians, but because of all the debt, they they lost that and they remained mortgaged up to the hilt, and the the cotton revenues were committed for the next ten years. The poor Egyptians really didn't do terribly well out of it. So the canal became prosperous, and de he didn't actually make much money out of it. He wasn't a major shareholder or anything. He, He got an enormous amount of prestige. He was known as Le Grand Français, so he had a lot of prestige. And when he went to Britain, visited London, 30,000 people came out to see him. And he, Queen Victoria g- gave him awards, and he got the freedom of the city of London. So he was very much sort of in the up. But the poor Egyptians got practically nothing out of it. You can understand why um, somewhat later they, uh, they decided they'd take it over. There we are, that's the canal. That's how it was soon after it was opened. You can see it wasn't actually terribly wide, and that's what it looks like now, or a bit later. And there's been an enormous amount over the years of dredging to make it wider and bigger. So it's sort of three times as wide, it's probably same to say, three times as deep as it used to be. So that's the Suez Canal. I'm not going to talk about Suez Crisis and all that sort of stuff. That was um, somewhat later, and... Uh, not part of the remit. OK, so let's move on to the Panama Canal. Since 1513, when Vasco Nune de Balboa confirmed that the, uh, he first crossed the isthmus of Panama, as we all know, and confirmed that uh, the land discovered by Columbus wasn't China after all, there'd been frequent ideas to how they could get through or get around this rather inconvenient bit of land that stopped them sailing through to the Pacific. And... Even back in 1534, Charles V, King of Spain, uh, ordered a survey of the isthmus to see if there was a way of getting a canal through. But uh, it was decided it was just too difficult. And anyway, the traffic would have been very small. As far as I'm aware, apart from local type traffic, um, there was one fleet of of, um, carrying spices and and and, um, silks and such that used to come across in the Philippines once a year. And that used to go into Acapulco, generally, across the Isthmus there, and then on to Spain. And then there was the Peruvian Silver Fleet that used to come up. That used various ways to get across, but the main uh, route was actually through Panama. Lots of people suggested building canals through the Isthmus, Thomas Jefferson, Barings of London thought it might make a nice commercial venture, Alexander von Humboldt, and lots of others. Most of them had never been anywhere near Panama. They had no idea what was involved in building them. But it's only 40 miles. Surely it can't be that difficult. Then the collapse of the Spanish Empire in Latin America led to a surge of American interest in building a canal. Um, U.S. officials started negotiating with Gran Colombia, because if you remember at that time, Colombia was Colombia, what's now Colombia, Venezuela, Panama, and such, right? So they started negotiating with them, uh, but they didn't want to know, they were worried about Americans trying to dominate things, fancy that. And then, of course, we had the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which said, as the Spanish and Portuguese were leaving South America, look you colonial powers, We don't want you interfering with Central Central South America. The bit that wasn't written was the only people who are allowed to do that is us. And of course, by this time they bought. They bought Florida, they bought Louisiana, um, they'd had the Mexican America, US Mexican War, um, 1846 started, where they got acquired, shall we say, Texas and California. And so there were starting to be many more reasons why you'd want to have a trade between the West Coast and the East Coast or the East Coast and the West Coast more likely.
1: So that the Americans
0: signed a treaty with Colombia, guaranteeing Colombian sovereignty over Panama. That's a bit of a joke considering what happened later. And authorised them to build a railway and, or a canal across the Isthmus with proviso that it was open to everybody to, to use, which was the um, Colombians' concern. And then, in 1848, one often wonders, if they'd found that gold a few years earlier, what what would have happened in history? But in 1848, just after the US had acquired California, they found gold. And of course, lots of people wanting to get there to go and get their share. And most of the people lived on the east coast of America, because there weren't many people on the west coast. They were nearly all sort of Spanish priests and such like, and Indians, who don't count. So they had gold. So there was the gold rush, though it really wasn't much of a rush, because if you look, see how it took to get from the west east coast to the west coast, if you went round the Horn, it took you six months. Sailing ships, mainly. If you went across the continent directly, and that rather hospitable journey, it took you four months. And the main route that the U.S., Postal Service was already using and was subsidizing the shipping on. It took you two months sail down to to Panama across the isthmus and then up to Panama City and then up. These are the various routes that the, that the Spanish had used across but by by the the, the, the the route that they had used most and used latterly was the route twenty which way you 're going up the Chagres River and then the continental divide is here, it's right on the sort of this side of the, of the, the isthmus Then across the, the continental divide. The Chagras River is an incredibly dangerous river at that point. Um, it could rise 30 feet in a couple of days when the rain started. You know, we, we worry about flooding we get here, 30 feet is an awful lot of river to rise. So it really was only practical to use in the dry season. And then they used to go there in dugout canoes or such like. Then across the canal, the divide. But the Spanish trails have been largely let go once they'd gone. This was hard. wasn't used very much. The trails were terrible. They got overgrown the moment you got the rains. 120 inches of rain a year there. So the whole thing was only really possible in in the dryish season. The dangers of cholera, malaria, yellow fever, animals, snakes, forest, raging rivers. It was not the nice way to do it, but it only took four to eight days to do it if you were lucky. Anyway, the, having got a gold rush, having got all this extra people trying to get across, the Americans, enterprising Americans, they built themselves a railway. I mean, what else would you do? And so the, the railway virtually followed the same route, up the, along the river and then into Panama. 47 miles long, started in 1850, it took five years to build. Maybe someone should have learned a lesson. Five years to build a railway across 47 miles. It was built using Chinese and Irish labourers along with a number of American slaves. Um, it cost eight million dollars and the lives of an estimated five to ten thousand workers. We don't know how many. The railroad company didn't keep records. We do know they made quite a lot of money selling dead bodies to medical schools. This lady was involved. This is Mary. This was Mary Seacole. Brother was there in, in Panama while they were building the railway, and she visited him at the time when there was a cholera outbreak. And she treated the first cholera victim, it wasn't a victim, because he survived. But amongst the workers, this is quite... As a result of that, she uh, established a bit of a reputation. She set up, as she did in, later in the Crimea, she set up at the British Hotel, which was really a rest house, uh, somewhere where people could get food and have a relaxation. She didn't know how to cure yellow fever. She didn't know how to cure cholera. But she at least made life com- more comfortable for, for the working people. People who got any money would pay her. Those that didn't, she treated for free. Then she ran out of money in 1854. She left, went back to Jamaica and on to the Crimea, where we know far more about her. Or sort of, always overshadowed by somebody else. Anyway, as I said, it was built five years. In the first 10 years, it carried half a million people, which was an awful lot of people in those days for that sort of route. Railway was the highest priced on the US stock exchange. It It made a mint. Anybody who'd invested in it made a fortune. It was the only way to travel. It cut journey times, it made life safer, and they could charge what they wanted because it was so much better than, than the alternatives. But then, unfortunately for them, 1869, the Pacific Railway, the first transcontinental railway in the US, opened. So, of course, all the traffic shifted there. And nobody wanted to go sail all that way down if they could catch the railway the whole way across. So all the gold and immigrant traffic shifted to the other route, and it didn't have any much in the way of traffic any longer. Luckily for it, it was rescued by, from oblivion by the advent of the Suez Canal. We've seen how keen the US was to, uh, to build a canal, but they really didn't know where to build it. President Ulysses Grant was in power at the time. Um, he'd actually been to Panama, and he understood the benefits of a canal, but also, having been there, he realized the problems, potential problems, of building one. So he did what all good politicians and bureaucrats do. He set up a committee. Uh, <laughs> And um, so in 1869, he set up the Inter-Oceanic Canal Commission, was headed by Admiral Arnman, to investigate all the possible routes through, um, through the isthmus, to use common methodologies, they were to make surveys, so that it actually could make a proper comparison between the, between the different routes. The commission reported in 1876, so it, like all committees, it took uh, seven years, six or seven years to come up with its conclusions. But the vast majority, a firm majority, was in favor of the route through Nicaragua. This was 100 miles, but you can see that there's Lake Nicaragua there, and uh, they can make use of that. They decided that Panama was just too expensive, and they did learn from building the railway it was just going to be too difficult. So they started negotiations with the Nicaraguan government. These went rather slowly, and... In May 1879, that's three years, more than three years after the commissioner reported, the papers in New York reported that the French were going to build a canal through Panama. Building the Suez Canal had made them think that it was going to be easy. It's easy to build a canal through, um, yeah, similar sort of thing. You've just got a bit of land there, and you join the two ends, and we'll. we'll through. And it's only half the distance, it's not even half the distance. Suez so Canal is over 100 miles long. A few years earlier they'd had the Franco-Prussian War. They were fe- feeling a bit sorry for themselves. Um, they needed something to boost their morale and, and sort of improve their prestige. So they thought this would be a good thing. Prosperity, it was, the econ- economy was booming at that time. They were making a lot of money out of build, out the railway age. Lots of money sloshing around. They could afford to build this canal. So they set up the interocean—I can't say it in French—the so Interocean Canal Company. They obtained a concession from the Colombian government, and it was chaired, led by Ferdinand de hes He's—he's got a bit older by now, but he was seventy-one. He was not a young man at the stage, but he—he—he he, he was leading this. He was the force behind the project. They had a, an engineering congress in uh, Paris. This was in 1879. This is the one that was reported um, in the American papers. It, it was convened to agree where it should be built and how it should be designed. There were 136 delegates, of whom only 42 were engineers. Most were either speculators or politicians. You can't trust them, can you? Or friends of the apps He was convinced that a sea-level canal was the, through Panama, was the way to go. Build a sea level canal, we don't want locks, they cause problems. And he well, thought, of course it can be built at least as easily as the Suez Canal. All the engineers who had a knowledge of uh, Panama or anybody who had been there, voted for Nicaragua as their location. This is a pattern you might start to see emerging. But the followers of Lesaps were the majority and they voted for Panama which was then going to follow basically the same route as the railway went. The engineer in Congress estimated it would cost $214 million to build and take eight years. Now, Decepts was not really a great one with numbers. He was more of a politician. He decided that it could be built for $120 million. He got no real justification of cutting the price down, but he did it by... Instead of having 100% contingency, and after all, the Suez Canal cost twice as much as they thought, he cut the contingency down to 20%. So, yeah. <laughs> you can reduce the apparent cost by doing exactly that. And he said, well, it only takes six years to build. It's not going to take all that long. So, that's what the prospectus of the company said. And, of course, Suez took 10 years. And, you know, Suez is essentially a ditch going through the flat, sandy desert with the odd bit of rock every now and again the central american's mountainous region rises to 360 feet above sea level at its highest so not quite the same they they were going to have to dig an awful lot of rock out uh, and nobody noted down a proper survey at this um, at this point no, they didn't know what the rock was like which is probably just as well they even suggested some people then instead of doing it in a the cutting, they put a tunnel through. Basically what was going to happen was were going to, they were going to use the Chagroth River up here. So that's sort of more than, well over half the route would be on the Chagroth River. Um, and then they would have a cut through the continental divide, which as I say is running through here. And you see Calebra, that's the famous Calebra Cut which was where they had to dig, get the vast, the big cutting through. They were going to put a dam on the River Chagres here at Gamboa. That would stop the changes in height in, in the river when the rains came, um, and then they would build diversionary channels to take the water away into the hinterland somehow. That was all very well. Uh, but unfortunately nobody, as I say, done any surveys. When they actually came to build the dam at Gamber, they found they couldn't find any suitable ground where the, the found they could build foundations for a dam, so they had to abandon that idea. They never actually did work out what to do instead. So that was the, that was the problem. They got the Chagres River, they got the cut through the Continental Divide, and that was going to be... A, let alone the problem of disease. Because at this point, they still hadn't discovered, worked out, what the uh, transmission uh, process was for malaria and yellow fever. So, as I showed just now, they, they were very good. They built quite a, a number of hospitals on some of the islands just off Panama, but they didn't want creepy crawlies going up the, into the beds, and they, or lizards or snakes or things. So they put all the legs, the um, legs of the uh, of the beds, hospital beds, in um, cans of water. Wonderful breeding ground for mosquitoes, but they didn't know. So the moment you have got one malarial or yellow fever victim, um, person in, yum yum yum, and they've all got it. <laughs> but they just didn't know. So they tried their best, but they just didn't know what to do. <laughs> The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.